the Middle East, more than 450 million people. Arabs, Egyptians, Jews, Greeks, to name just a few. Lots of oil, lots of trouble, but not much hope. Rex Rogers has just returned from a trip to the Middle East and North Africa regions, and boy, has he got stories. You don't want to miss one of them, and you won't if you join us now for The Land and the Book. Welcome to our one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Captain Charlie Dyer is in the pilot seat. I'm John Geiger, his co-pilot. Welcome aboard. Good to be flying with you today, Charlie. Hey, John, it's good flying with you. And as we would say on the airline industry, you know, fasten your seatbelt. There could be some turbulence ahead. Okay. Hey, quick question as we begin. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important? And what does it mean for you? Charlie? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, what do you say we turn the page and look at headlines from the Middle East, stories unfolding all this week there in that region? Story number one, Russia, Iran, and Turkey met just over a week ago to talk about peace in Syria. What were they able to accomplish? And is Syria the only topic that was discussed? Well, the three countries are looking for a way to stabilize Syria, but in some ways they, they're actually working at cross-purposes. Russia wants Syria united again under Bashar Assad, with Russia as his main patron. Iran wants Syria united under Assad as well, but with access for both Iran and Hezbollah. Turkey wants to retain a buffer area in northern Syria for two purposes. that They want to repatriate the millions of Syrian refugees who fled into Turkey during the Syrian civil war. And they want to push the Kurds off the border and they've already, in fact, announced plans for a military campaign to extend their control in northern Syria. Now, that's something Russia and Iran want to prevent. So it's possible they're really looking for a way to meet Turkey's demands while also allowing Assad to regain control. Now, there were other reasons for these three leaders to meet. Coming so closely after President Biden's visit to the region, the meeting was intended to send a message to Washington that there are three other countries of influence in that region who aren't looking to the U.S. for leadership or direction. It's also likely that Russia used the time to finalize a deal with Iran to provide Russia with hundreds of drones for its war in Ukraine. Russia and Iran also discussed ways to improve economic relations to help counteract the Western sanctions on both countries. Now, each of the three countries harbors its own goals for extending its influence in the Middle East. And in that sense, they're as much adversaries as they are allies. But right now, they're willing to find temporary solutions to their differences to take advantage of what they perceive to be waning U.S. influence in the region. And what I have to say at the end is their cooperation is not good news for Israel or for the U.S. Charlie, you think there was any conversation about Ukraine going on as those three countries met? Uh, I think in the sense that it's uh, suddenly coming out of it, Syria said it's no longer recognizing the government in Ukraine. It's pulling its uh, embassy and other factors out. Other uh, allies with Russia and Iran have done the same thing. Uh, that is, they're trying to uh, build a coalition, if you will, against the U.S. and against the West. And uh, I'm not sure if it'll make a practical difference, but it certainly tried to make a splash in media. 
Well, Libya is still a country divided, but lately there has been a glimmer of hope for possible reconciliation. What's been happening there, and why is the process toward peace so complex? Well, you know, at first glance, the changes that we're seeing seem rather subtle. The UN-sponsored prime minister in Tripoli sacked the director of Libya's state-owned National Oil Corporation. Now, what made people pay attention is that the director was replaced by a banker who's reported to be very closely tied to Libyan strongman Khalifa Haftar. Now, this was seen as a sign extending an olive branch from the one leader to the other uh, in a bid to turn the two longtime adversaries into allies. The news was certainly good for the oil industry, since the dispute had shut much of Libya's oil production at the very time the world needs oil most. The question now is, what happens next? Can the two enemies work out a roadmap to restore a single government and prepare for new elections? And can they quell the unrest that's caused by Libya's growing poverty and deteriorating living conditions? Uh, One issue not yet clear is how any reconciliation with Libya will impact others outside that were supporting the different factions. Turkey was supporting the UN-backed government, while Russia, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia have supported Haftar. The U.S. and Britain supported the Turkish-backed government largely because of our opposition to Russia. But France had supported the other government because they hoped to gain access to Libya's oil. Now, will the rest of the world help Libya's return to stability, or will these other rivalries and political ambitions short-circuit that process? And right now, John, we don't know the answer. Well, your reference to Libya reminds me that in our conversation coming up with Rex Rogers, we're going to be looking at North Africa and the Middle East in his recent return from that region. But let's continue here on The Land of the Book with segment one, our look at current events. Drip irrigation, the system that provides water to plants while conserving overall water resources, was developed in Israel. But now there's a new and improved Israeli irrigation system. Tell us about this new system and the impact that it could have on agriculture in other water-stressed countries. Well, John, I find this story fascinating, but it does require just a bit of history. Israel helped pioneer drip irrigation, which allows plants to get the water they need while not wasting water through evaporation or by watering non-productive areas. Uh, The system definitely saves on water. But now, Israel wants to bring drip irrigation into the 21st century. This new system uses technology to calculate specific amounts of water for each area based on multiple variables. Uh, It's now being tested in Israeli vineyards, but it has the potential of being used for many other crops in both Israel and elsewhere. The system works by collecting weather information and other key data to know exactly the amount of water each plant needs in a specific area at a specific time. It then sends WhatsApp alerts to the grower and connects directly to the irrigation system in order to uh, give the precise amount of water for each area. The growers input specific data on field locations, grape varieties, land area, and frequency of watering during the growing season. The system takes all that data and provides the growers uh, with nearby weather information from stations on specific conditions in that unique area so the grower can determine water needs based on the most accurate weather information. The goal is to use all available data to prevent wasting water while maximizing production. 
Yeah, I wonder, John, if they should call this system Drip Irrigation 2.0 uh, <laughs> you know, to acknowledge the, the high-tech component being added to help squeeze out the benefit of virtually every drop of water. Yeah, well, you could see where that would be hugely beneficial to not just, you know, water, even in a conservative way with that drip irrigation, but in a more strategic way, exactly what water is needed and when it's needed. Fascinating. Definitely will save water, that's for sure. Yeah, Well, scientists in Amazing Israel are developing a new cancer treatment that fools the body's immune system into attacking cancer. How does this new approach work, Charlie? And when, is the big question, will it be available to those struggling with cancer today? Yeah, and let's deal with that second question first. You know, developing new drugs can take up to 15 years and cost untold millions of dollars. The company in this story is called Neotex, that is N-E-O and then capital T-X, all run together. They've raised $80 million so far, and they've actually been in a phase one trial in Israel. They've also just begun a phase two trial here in the U.S. They hope to complete all the trials and have the drug on the market in five years, by 2027. Now, even though the final product might be five years away, here's what makes this treatment so special and and so anticipated. Uh, Neo-TX has developed a cancer-fighting approach that uses bacteria to bait the patient's own immune system into attacking cancer cells. Uh, It's a form of immunotherapy, which is already in use. However, current immunotherapy only works in about 20% of patients with solid tumors. The researchers believe the problem is that cancer cells are masters at convincing the body they're not foreign invaders. This new treatment uses two proteins. The, The first is an antibody that latches onto a tumor through a molecule found primarily in tumors. The second is a bacterial derivative that causes the body to have an antibacterial immune response. The patient's own immune system then attacks the bacteria as well as the tumor to which it's attached. Someday, and hopefully soon, doctors will have another weapon in their arsenal to allow a patient's own body to fight off cancer as if it were nothing more than a bacterial infection. And John, when that day comes, then let's thank the scientists at Neotex in amazing Israel. Charlie, I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you happen to have a link that people might be able to reference to explore this just a bit further? In fact, John, it's very simple. It is neotx.com. Neotx.com. Check that out for yourself. That'll, That'll take them there. Yep. Great. Well, Charlie, we're so grateful to have a podcast available. A lot of people don't listen to The Land and the Book on a regular FM radio station, Their only connection with us is the podcast. But for somebody who listens via radio and doesn't really take advantage of that podcast, what are they missing, Charlie? Well, at any given time that they're out traveling, they just happen to miss the program on its regularly scheduled time on the radio, they can go back and listen to the program. Or if they listen to it on radio and want to go back and hear a particular segment or the whole program again, uh, they have that opportunity. And that podcast is waiting for you now at thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, an update on the Middle East and North Africa on The Land and the Book. The Middle East, more than 450 million people. Arabs, Egyptians, Jews, Greeks, to name just a few, Lots of oil, lots of trouble, but not much hope. Rex Rogers has just returned from a trip to the Middle East and North Africa region, and boy, has he got stories. You don't want to miss a one of them, 
And you won't if you keep it here on The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, right now with a quick thought on sharing Christ with a Muslim friend. In the United States, we say, you have a faith in Jesus? Isn't that nice? But when you're talking to a Muslim person about their faith, it's a whole different thing. Maybe that's a contrast we need to understand better as we talk now with Samia Johnson, who's with Call of Love. Uh, how do we capitalize on this difference and, and make sure that we are where we should be in, in sharing Isa, Jesus? John, I don't think as True Christ followers we talk enough about Jesus. I was shocked when I came to the United States 20 years ago that faith is very private. And uh, during my visits to churches, I've had people come to me after a seminar and saying, I'm confessing to you that I've been in my workplace for 10 years and no one knows that I'm a true Christ follower. Mm. This is not the case with Muslims. With Muslims, their religion is public. They have to talk about uh, their religion. It comes up in everyday conversation because they have to practice it with prayer, saying things before the meals. And they tell them in the mosque, you should share your faith with non-Muslims because this is called dawah and you will gain so many points with Allah if you do it. I feel that as true Christ followers, we have to be more courageous in talking about Jesus and then they will respect us more because imagine if they find out after two years of friendship, oh, we have a faith and we're really strong about Jesus. It will be very shameful to talk to them after that. There's more from Samia Johnson at the website calloflove.org. Dr. Rex Rogers is president of Sat7 North America. This is a satellite television ministry broadcasting Christian programming reaching across seven time zones into 24 countries in the Middle East and North Africa. Rex, it's great to be able to connect with you again after your recent visit to the Middle East and North Africa. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. Thank you, sir, and thanks for inviting me. Hey, take us to a singular moment on this trip where you said, wow, these people need Jesus What comes to mind? Well, when you land in Cairo, which is the first place we visited, we have a studio there. You're talking about a city of 25 million, and like any major city, it never stops, it never sleeps. Uh, You see the minarets across the city, you hear the calls to prayer, Uh, you know that they don't hear a lot of biblical truth, they don't have access to it in very many ways, and you know that they're hopeless without that, and so that's just one part of our contribution. Hopelessness. You say that's still the single best word to describe the state of the Middle East slash North Africa culture. Is that your assessment or is that a kind of a vibe that you that you sense in the people as you travel around? Well, it is a vibe, but that is the assessment of the North African Middle Eastern Christians themselves. Uh, not something that me as a Westerner, I come in and say, oh, you hopeless people. <laughs> no, uh, that's what they're talking about and their sense of that. Not only the things that you hear day by day on the air, all the problems, Middle East is you know, on the news every day, but boil it down, they don't have anywhere to turn. And for the most part, there's very little access to Christianity and Christian truth and churches, uh, the Word of God, and so that's, of course, what we're trying to provide. Let's talk about ministering to youth for a moment here. We're seeing huge smartphone access and massive social media growth among young people in the Middle East and North Africa. What kind of ministry opportunities has that created for your team and maybe some challenges too? You know, we started out, we're 26 years old, but we started out and still are a satellite Christian television ministry 
that allows us to reach the masses. But with the growth of mobile phones and social media and youth in that region of the world, just like everywhere else, wanting access to that, and even though regimes and rulers try to prevent it in certain places, it's still happening. And so we've developed something called Sat7 Plus. It's like video on demand, uh, where we can reach them on their phones. And of course, we're doing far more on social media today through apps like WhatsApp, Telegram, because they're better encrypted. In other words, they're more secure for the people in some place like Iran or Saudi Arabia to be able to interact with us and communicate and ask very deep spiritual questions. Dr. Rex Rogers is a former school administrator and uh, serves as president of Sat7 North America, a satellite television ministry. He's our guest today on The Land and the Book. Rex, what kind of stories come to mind when you think of ministering to young people? We hear every day. I mean, we get uh, contacts. We call it audience relations. We interact through mostly social media, and we're hearing from people as they contact us. You know, last August, now that's old news in one sense, but it's still continuing of what's taking place in Afghanistan, where young people are reaching out. Here's one from a young lady named Nisha who said, look, everyone is afraid. We're scared of the Taliban. I'm only 16 years old. Cannot take what's happening around me. I'm crying out to God right now. Someone please help us. My family situation is very bad. We hear anecdotes like that, testimonies every day. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we don't get many behind-the-curtain glimpses into what's happening in Afghanistan, politically, let alone spiritually. And so that's sort of an encouraging word. Well, it's interesting that they can get access. Uh, We've been broadcasting in there since 2002, blanketing the country since Mm -hmm. 2017. So if people have a television set, and if they, in the security or privacy of their own home, have any satellite dish, and almost everybody does, even the poorest of the poor, they can get access to the outside and therefore to some sense of truth and of hope. Uh, Here's one from a person named Edine. Greetings to you. You called me a while ago, but I'm unable to carry a mobile phone because where I live is under Taliban control. Whenever you are thinking of calling me, please let me know in advance so that I can try to do something to somehow answer your call. Thank you for getting in touch with me. So they're they're desperate for contact. Uh, They're desperate for information. Of course, they're desperate for information about Uh, who the Lord is, and how they can uh, respond to him and the gospel. Now, how does illiteracy in the Middle East and North Africa influence your approaches to ministry? There has to be some kind of a dynamic there that you're wrestling with. Well, it's one of the regions of the world where illiteracy is among the highest. It's higher among women. It's higher in rural areas. It varies rather dramatically among the 25 countries of the Middle East and North Africa. But nevertheless, it's real. And as you know, illiteracy doesn't mean you're dumb or stupid or that you can't do anything in life. In fact, illiterate people run very successful businesses. They just have not had the privilege of education to read and write. Consequently, television, mass media is still a very, very important tool because, you know, you can be illiterate and interact with it. Where social media and online kind of Internet access, you have to have some level of literacy to be able to handle it. So television is still huge. It's going to be huge for a number of years to come. We're looking at stories out of the Middle East and also North Africa with Rex Rogers, our guest today on The Land and the Book. Well, what what other stories come to mind when you think about ministering to young people in the Middle East, particularly? You know, you've got this letter from this girl in Afghanistan, other, other email that you've received. Well, here's one from a person named Sahir in northern Algeria. This is a man 
he said he was once an abuser of alcohol and of both men and women. And he said, look, in the past, I used to hate people around me. These are his words. My heart was full of hatred. Now the Lord has given me a new heart, a compassionate one. Mm. Jesus Christ changed my life 100%. I have a new heart and a new character. He changed my entire nature. Now, you talk about new creation in Christ that the New Testament talks about. There it is, writ large, uh, day by day. Here's one from Kahina, who is a Berber woman. It's an ethnic group in North Africa. She said, I was married at the age of 16. My father had chosen a man for me to be my husband, a man that I had never met. And after we were married, I suffered a lot with him, with my husband. He has always been beating me, even without any reasons. Beatings and scolding women are part of manhood in our society. I begged my husband for a divorce, but he refused. After 23 years of suffering, my husband heard about Jesus Christ and accepted him as his Savior and Master. His character was totally changed. He's not that tough man anymore. He shared with me about the God of hope. And with my eyes shut, I accepted Jesus, who has changed my husband's life, and so did my two sons and my daughter. So here's an wow. entire family wow. of North Africans that came to Christ simply by getting access to the Word of God. Let's talk about the sensitivities and stress points that surface when you're looking at ministry opportunities in Turkey versus Iran versus other Arab countries. Lots of potential pitfalls here, it seems to me. Well, Turkey, for example, a nation of 80, 85, whatever the estimate, 90 million people, it's interesting. A Turkish person might look at you, if you say, I'm a Christian, then your Turkish friend might look at you and say, well, I thought you were Turkish. Now, that question is nonsensical to us. We wouldn't say, well, I thought you were an American, because we have that freedom of religious choice. Over Mm -hmm. there, it's different. They identify their religious identity is directly integral and linked with their national identity. So you declare yourself a Christian it's like being unpatriotic. Yeah, It's like being unfaithful to your heritage and who you are. So it's doubly dangerous in some circumstances. Iran's a little different. Iran, clearly there's persecution going on today, but the missiologists tell us that the church, capital C, the body of Christ, is growing faster in Iran, and they've been saying this for a few years, than any other country of the world. Now, that's amazing. Mm. He's just back from a trip to the Middle East and North Africa. Dr. Rex Rogers is president of Sat7 North America, a satellite television ministry. Wild card moment for you, Rex. Pick a country, any country in the Middle East, and share a story that says this is why we must show the compassion of Christ to these people. Well, it's interesting. I might choose Lebanon. Lebanon is about the size of our Connecticut. It's not a big country. Uh, they've got something like uh, 4 million residents and based on U.N. estimates, 2 million-plus refugees. Now, do the math on that, proportionately, and think about the immigration and refugee arguments in the United States, if you want to, in terms of this mathematics. But there it is, overwhelming, and on top of that, they have no elected government. They have a dicey situation, high rampant inflation, COVID-19, just like everywhere else, that's surging there and kind of come back. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And In the midst of all that, little tiny Lebanon is probably the country of the entire Middle East and North Africa where there's more religious liberty, as we'd understand that, Mm -hmm. that exists there yet today. And uh, one of the founders of Sat7, the founder, Terrence Ascot, said once, look, if we lose Lebanon, we've lost religious liberty in the Middle East and North Africa. We cannot allow that to happen. Uh, People need to be able to—and when we say religious liberty, not only for Christians, but for Muslims— 
for Maronites, for Catholics, for everybody. We, you know, we believe that God wants us to be able to choose, and uh, it's not only the doctrine of being created in the image of God as reasoning people, but also the priesthood of all believers, to allow people to make those choices. So it's a very difficult situation to be able to minister there today to help them, encourage them, meet their needs spiritually is a powerful tool because there's just they have nowhere else to yeah. go. There's nothing else. To do. You and I can run down to any corner just about in any city in the United States and find some kind of a store where we can buy a Bible. That's not true in the Middle East and North Africa. We can get on the air in almost any hour of the day and find Christian programming from trusted biblical speakers, teachers. They can't do that in the Middle East and North Africa. And it's just a, a very difficult situation. When you add illiteracy to that, I'm not sure. Again, I don't know where you grew up, but I grew up in Ohio. I have never, I never experienced anything like that. <laughs> uh, I've never had anybody look at me and say, you can't do that because you're whatever you are. That is what they experience in those countries every day. Rex, you've got 15 seconds. How would you encourage listeners right now to pray for the Middle East and North Africa? Well, continue to pray that the gospel, that's the most powerful, transformative message in the world today. We know that, and sometimes we get sidetracked with other programs and approaches, but it is the gospel that transforms people's life, their hearts on the inside, and what you do on the inside, of course, comes out. And once you transform the inside, then you transform the family, you transform the society, the culture, uh, you affect the rest of what we do. We're salt and light in that way. So the, pray that God will continue to allow not only Sat7, but other Christian ministries to have a free reign to be able to get the truth of the Word of God to people on the ground in this very dynamic and important region. It's not called the middle uh, for no reason. It's in the middle of all of our conversations worldwide, and it always will be according to prophecy. It's always a fast-paced conversation when Rex Rogers is on board. Thank you for your perspectives. Appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. And Charlie Dyer's back with more questions, maybe one of them yours, next, here on The Land and the Book. Good to have you listening to The Land and the Book today. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. Charlie, for somebody who's new, what is this all about, this segment we're about to enjoy together? Uh, this is the part I love as a teacher. It's where people get to ask their questions that they have about the Bible or the Middle East or current events, and I try and supply an answer. Uh, it's kind of working on the high wire without a net, and I love it. Okay. Well, here's a question. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, our opening question today from Alan. He says, today my wife and I were reading from Deuteronomy 30, and verse 3 jumped out at me. It says that then the Lord your God will turn your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. When I read 
and will return and gather you, it sounded to me that the passage was talking about the second coming of our Lord to set up the millennial kingdom. Am I reading something into the scripture that is not there? Well, actually, Alan, I don't think you're off the mark at all. I'd say Deuteronomy 30 is speaking about an ultimate regathering of the nation from captivity. In verse 6, God says he'll circumcise your hearts. And I see a reference there to the spiritual transformation, which actually becomes one of the central themes of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And it also describes an ultimate return from captivity in those passages as well. In Matthew 24, Jesus connects his return to the regathering of Israel from among the nations. So in the progress of Revelation, I think the ultimate regathering of Israel, physically and spiritually, mentioned there in Deuteronomy, is connected to the second coming. Here's a question from Kim. He says, I'm wondering if you could clarify how it is that Moses and Aaron did not follow God's instructions in Numbers 20. I read that the people were complaining again about water, but in verse 6, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, seeking what they should do. Verse 9 says, Moses took the staff from before the Lord, and he commanded him. I'm thinking the answer is in verse 12. These men did not do it with a believing heart. Your thoughts? Yeah, I also think the key there is verse 12. Now, up until verse 9, Moses was being fully obedient. Uh, That's why the verse notes that Moses took the staff just as God commanded him. But then verse 10 suggests Moses was personally fed up with the disobedience and rebellion of these people. In fact, he calls them their rebels. In his frustration, he struck the rock rather than speaking to it, which is what God had commanded him to do in verse 8. Now, God's judgment in verse 12 came, it says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. That is, by striking the rock, Moses emphasized his efforts to bring water from the rock rather than simply speaking and having God do all the work. Now, ultimately, it was disobedience on Moses' part, and that disobedience brought God's judgment. Now, this event brings to mind, though, two other thoughts. And the first is, leaders are held to a higher standard than others. This is an illustration of what James said in chapter 3. Not many of you should be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, second, I think it's possible God intended a typological significance in these events. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 is where Paul says the rock that accompanied Israel in the wilderness represented Christ. Uh, the living waters first came when the rock was struck, you know, perhaps picturing Christ's crucifixion. And then the second time, Moses was just to speak to the rock. But by striking it again, Moses marred the illustration God possibly intended hmm. and sadly lost his ability to go into the promised land as a result. Yeah. You're listening to The Land of the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. You're saying, how do these people get their questions to Charlie? It's easy, with an email. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu is how you can send your question. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Sharon says, recently I heard a very well-known teacher say that worry and anxiety are not sins. He used the passage from Philippians 4, verse 6, and explained that This was the same as a parent would say to a fearful child, don't worry, just tell me what's wrong. It was more of a comfort and not mention of sin. Now, I've always thought of it as sin. Uh, It showed that it was not trusting Jesus. What do you think? Yeah, I I don't know who the speaker was, so I can't comment on on what they said specifically. But I do know, know fear, worry, and anxiety are not always sinful in and of themselves. But they are emotions that God wants to help remove from our lives and replace with a greater sense of trust in Him. So here's some passages that that come to mind for me. Uh, In Psalm 139, 23, the psalmist wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
So he was having trouble with anxiety. But in the very next verse, he asked God to see if there's any offensive way in me. That suggests to me that his anxious thoughts weren't necessarily sinful or offensive actions on his part. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul described his coming to Corinth. He said, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. So uh, fear and, and anxiety and worry are emotions that were felt by some very godly people through history. But I think God wants us to learn how to cast our fear and our anxiety on him, to, to learn to trust him more. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus said, I'll tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or your body, about what you'll wear. Uh, he goes on and says, uh, don't worry, uh, your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you. Uh, same kind of thing. In, in John 14, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Uh, other passages like in Philippians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 are passages that remind us that we need to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Sherry asks, can you help me understand the reason two different locations are given for Jesus' ascension to heaven? Matthew 28 gives the location as a mountain in Galilee to which Jesus had called them to come. Luke 24 says Jesus led them to Bethany and said there he was lifted up to heaven. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, and what I'd say is Matthew 28 doesn't actually say Jesus ascended to heaven in Galilee. In Matthew 26, uh, 32, Jesus told the disciples he'd go on ahead of them to Galilee following his resurrection. Uh, And John 21 tells us Jesus met with his disciples in Galilee after the resurrection. So since Jesus met with the disciples for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, there's plenty of time for him first to meet them in Jerusalem and then spend time with them in Galilee before returning to Jerusalem again with them, which is where he ascended to heaven or certainly near Jerusalem, uh, just on the Mount of Olives near Bethany. Nancy says, I love your program. Never miss it on podcast usually. My question regarding the portions of the tribes that were given when Israel moved into the promised land. Knowing that Israel is a small land and that there was a great difference in the amount of land given based on the size of the tribe, my question, how many acres of small to large of land were given to each tribe? Since it was an agricultural society, land was certainly necessary. You know, Nancy, that's a great question. I wish I had a great answer to go with it. I've actually never seen a study that tried to determine the amount of acreage allotted to each tribe. And in fact, I'm not even sure such a study is possible because we don't know how much of the land was wooded or how much was desert at that time and how much was being used for agriculture. Now, some tribes did receive more physical land, but it's possible they were a larger tribe or that a larger percentage of that land wasn't suitable for agriculture. Uh, We just don't have that information, though. I assume the allotments were equitable based on the size of each tribe and the percentage of each allotment that was considered usable for agriculture. Stephen asks, I'd like to know how you interpret 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It seems that Paul is saying that the Antichrist is already existing at his time, but somehow is being restrained. Is this the same Antichrist that will appear during the tribulation period? What do you say? Well, I am a dispensationalist. I do believe in a literal seven-year tribulation, but I don't see Paul saying the Antichrist already existed in that passage. In verse 2, Paul's arguing the day of the Lord hasn't yet come. And then in verses 3 to 5, he shares what will happen when that day arrives. In verse 6, Paul then says the Antichrist will be revealed at the proper time, suggesting that time was still future. 
And while the Antichrist hadn't yet been revealed, he does say in verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Now, that could refer to evil in general or to the specific working of Satan, which is what I believe. But what Paul's making clear, though, is that uh, there was an evil work in his day, but it was being held back probably through the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, though, he says, then the lawless one will be revealed. In other words, he's clearly saying the Antichrist hadn't yet been revealed in his day, but would at some point in the future. Now, Paul didn't know when that would happen, and he makes it clear that the last days hadn't yet arrived. Now, that's when the events, including the rise of the Antichrist, will be fulfilled. And based on the rest of Scripture, I believe that'll happen in that still future seven-year tribulation period. Well, you've listened to this segment on the land of the book. You've heard other questions being asked. Why not get yours to us with a quick email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional, next. Hey, thanks for joining us today on The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. You know, Charlie, many of us grew up and uh, we looked over at neighborhoods that were often referred to as Snob Hill. But uh, on your devotional coming up in just a moment, you're going to take us to Knob Hill? Uh, That's right. You know, when we think of Knob Hill, we go one place in San Francisco. But you may not realize there's a Knob Hill in Jerusalem. We're going to get to that hill and find out its true biblical significance in Charlie's devotional, but not until after we hear this Holy Land experience. My most memorable time in the Holy Land was the day we spent in the Garden of Gethsemane and um, just knowing that Jesus spent his last night in prayer in that garden. And just to see the trees and the flowers that are there now um, and realizing that they were so old that um, this had to be the place where Jesus spent that night. And um, so my husband and I, we were sharing this trip and um, we stopped in that garden also and prayed for our family as Jesus prayed for his family, the believers, um, that night before he was crucified. Well, Charlie, Knob Hill is our destination today in your devotional, and uh, it figures rather prominently in a couple of Old Testament stories. It does, John. Now, for the listeners, if I say Knob Hill, what city comes to mind? I suspect for most of you listening, the answer is San Francisco. Knob Hill is one of the original seven hills on which the city was founded, and it got its name Knob Hill when the four major owners of the Central Pacific Railroad built mansions there in the mid-1800s. Knob was the shortened form of the word nobility, and it was a slang term for someone rich or wealthy. But there's also a Knob Hill in Israel. Actually, it was a village named Knob, but it was built on a hill, and the hill had quite a view. Knob was located on the northern extension of the Mount of Olives, on a hill that today is called Mount Scopus. And someone standing at Knob had a good view south to Mount Moriah and the city of Jerusalem about a mile and a half away. Today, Hebrew University and a very popular tourist hotel are located there. And for our devotional, you need to follow me through that hotel lobby and out onto its rooftop deck where we can see the Dome of the Rock glinting in the sunshine off to the south. This is definitely a hotel roof with a view. But as nice as the view is, I want us to use this spot to focus on two dramatic events in Israel's history that took place here. Both involve destruction and deliverance. So let's look at these two portraits of Israel's Knob Hill. 
Our first portrait takes us to 1 Samuel 21 and 22 and to a very dangerous time in the life of young David. David was a fugitive, on the run from a vengeful King Saul. As he ran south from Gibeah, Saul's capital, he came to the village of Nob where he met Ahimelech the priest. But what was a priest doing here at Nob? After the destruction of Shiloh by the Philistines many years before, the parts of the tabernacle had been scattered. The Ark of the Covenant ended up in Kiriath-Yarim, and the altar of sacrifice was carried to Gibeon. Evidently, a group of priests also carried away the table of showbread to Nob. Even though the parts of the tabernacle were scattered, these priests at Nob kept preparing sacred bread for this table every day, just as if it were still present inside the tent of meeting. David approached the priests at Nob and asked them for bread and for any weapon they might have. Certainly it must have seemed strange to the priests to see a high-profile servant of Saul show up hungry and defenseless. But David explained his unusual condition by saying he was on an urgent mission from King Saul. The only bread available was the consecrated bread which had been taken from the table of showbread. And the only weapon was the sword of Goliath, which was being kept there as a reminder of God's victory over the Philistines. David took the bread and the sword and left. Unfortunately, he did not get away unnoticed. Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds, happened to be in Nob as David came through. He later reported to Saul what he had seen. Saul summoned the priests of Nob to his capital and ordered them to be executed for treason. Everyone was afraid to put these priests to death, so Doeg the Edomite carried out Saul's gruesome command and killed 85 innocent priests. He then led a party of soldiers to Nob to kill every remaining man, woman, and child and animal in the town. Only one person escaped to share the news with David. David responded to this slaughter by composing Psalm 52, a psalm focusing on God's chesed, his loyal love and loving kindness, even in the face of evil. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. So what happened to Doeg the Edomite? We're never told. But we do know that once David became king, he launched a campaign against the Edomites. And as First Chronicles 18 reports, his army defeated 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. I just wonder if Doeg might have been one of those casualties. Our second portrait at Nob comes from the time of King Hezekiah, 300 years after David. In the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, the land of Judah was invaded by the Assyrians. Their military juggernaut rolled through the land and, by the king of Assyria's own count, destroyed 46 walled towns and countless villages and deported over 200,000 inhabitants of Judah as slaves. The Assyrian army bottled up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Isaiah 10 records the approach of the Assyrian army from the north against Jerusalem. Every city along the road south toppled like dominoes. Ayath, Migron, Michmash, Geba, Ramah, Gibeah of Saul, Galim, Lasha, Anatoth, Madmanah, Gabim. Each victory brought the army of Assyria closer to its final objective, Jerusalem. But then the list stops. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. 
the Assyrians made it right to the spot where we're now standing. Jerusalem was so close, yet so far away. What happened? 2 Kings 19 has the answer. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. As the king left, he shook his fist at the city, which just the day before seemed to be within his grasp. Perhaps as he shook his fist, he shouted, You haven't won yet. I'll be back. But he never returned. He was murdered inside a temple in Nineveh. Nob was as close as he got to the city of Jerusalem. The devastation he brought to Judah was great. But in the middle of that terrible time, God gave one of the greatest demonstrations of his loyal love and protection. And it happened at Nob. Well, it's time to leave this balcony and head back out to the bus. But before we go, take one last look at Jerusalem and picture in your mind how close Nob was to the city. Nob was a place of tragedy and triumph, of destruction and deliverance. Nob was where David was spared, but the families living there were killed. Nob marked the farthest point of advance for the army of Assyria, as well as the spot where God unleashed one of the greatest miracles of deliverance in all the Old Testament. Nob is a reminder that life can be tough, but that God is good. Even if we don't understand all that's taking place, we can trust Him. Perhaps the best way to end our time at Nob is to focus on the lesson David drew from this spot in Psalm 52. But as for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Or to put it in the words of that great songwriter, Ira Stamphill, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Wow. You know, Charlie, I had no idea that the Assyrians came that close to Jerusalem. Yeah, John, you have been on that balcony. You've seen that. Isn't it amazing? That's why it was so fearful for Israel. The the army was that close to taking the city when God intervened. Great story, as always. Our thanks to Charlie Dyer, our teacher. I want to say thanks to uh, Dan Anderson, our coordinating producer. And as always, thanks to the management at this station for carving out time for The Land and the Book. Hey, if it's been a while since you've visited our website, you ought to give it a visit. Thelandandthebook.org is your gateway to information about past programs, future programs, and lots more. That's thelandandthebook.org. And when you're there, be sure to click our Facebook icon. That'll take you right to the Facebook page. We're an active community of fellow learners and travelers like you and like me are there asking questions and having dialogue, looking at pictures from Charlie Dyer and, and lots, lots more. So check out that Facebook page. Again, we'll link you there at our website, thelandandthebook.org. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.